Welcome back, Game of Thrones fans, to a new episode of the Long Winter Podcast. This is going to be a Season 3 recap. And uh, before we get started, I just wanted to mention that um, some exciting news. I'm now officially on iTunes, so you can find the Long Winter Podcast on iTunes as well as SoundCloud, where uh, I'm also putting the podcast online. And we are now 10 days away, 10 days until the Season 7 debuts, and uh, I can't wait. I'm sure the rest of you guys are as excited as I am as well. Okay, so let's dive into the Season 3 recap. Uh, A lot of storylines, a lot of different um, characters with some important arcs that happen in this season, and uh, we're going to be touching on almost all of them, so let's, let's get to it. We'll start with the Starks and uh, Rob Stark. So Rob Stark, again, just like season two, he's, he's stuck in the Riverlands. He's trying to figure out you know, how he can get his forces to a point where they can attack King's Landing, how he can get enough men to be able to do that. And he knows that he can't draw the Lannisters out into the field. They're going to sit behind the, the walls of King's Landing, and he just doesn't have the forces to match up with the Lannister combination with the Tyrells. There's just too many men for him. So um, right now he's in the Riverlands in Season 3. His grandfather, uh, Catelyn's father, um, dies. So they go to uh, Riverrun to attend his funeral. At that point, he also meets with Edmure. He admonishes Edmure for disobeying his orders. So you can tell that there's this fracture starting to brew in Rob's camp. His his troops are a little bit disenfranchised with, you know, just their progress. And I'm sure a lot of fans are, you know, watching this season, you know, you want to see the Starks kind of be more assertive, be more aggressive, and they really aren't. Um, you just see... Rob kind of stagnant. Um, he's, you know, talking a lot with Talisa, working on that relation. You see him, you know, actually impregnate her, which is a good thing for the Starks. But um, just the process of, you know, trying to come up with a battle plan that's going to find some success, and they aren't able to do that. Uh, one of the other things that goes on strategy-wise, is since Rob has married Talisa and, you know, uh, reneged on his vow with Walder Frey to marry one of his daughters, Rob realizes that they need the Freys to come into the fold for them, you know, if they want to attack the Lannisters somewhere. And they, they end up deciding to attack the Lannisters at Casterly Rock, where they're maybe a little bit vulnerable now. But he needs the Frey's army. He needs their support. And in order to get that support, they've got to entreat with Walder Frey. They've got to, you know, come to him, accept whatever offering he has. And that's, he wants Edmir, among other things, Edmir to marry one of his daughters. So they agree to this. Edmir, you know, relents. And uh, they end up going to to the twins to to marry Edmure to one of Walder Frey's daughters. 
and you know we know what happens there i'll be one of if not the biggest moments of the first six seasons so uh, we'll get back to that when we talk about the moments of the season okay so now let's move on to artist stark uh actually really quickly i wanted to talk about talisa so Talisa is an interesting character, right? In the books, it's quite clear that she's a spy for the Lannisters. Um, the, the show doesn't quite make it that obvious. Um, it, you've got to kind of read into it, which I think can easily be done. But, uh, you know, she's saying that she's writing letters to her mother, but she's constantly writing these letters, right? Rob constantly finds her writing these letters and... Uh, I don't think there's any other explanation, especially when you find out that the phrase realized or have the intelligence that uh, Talisa's carrying a child, you know, she's stabbed right in the belly on purpose. Um, I think this is a sign that the Lannisters knew about Talisa's pregnancy and that uh, then they would have told the phrase that she was pregnant as well. Because otherwise, how else would they have known? She wasn't showing really at all. So, um, you know, you wouldn't just assume that a girl is pregnant simply because uh, they've been married for a month or two or that, you know, yeah. And um, so that's quite interesting. I think that needs to be pointed out that Talisa continued to spy on Rob even after they married. And... uh, ends up, you know, being his downfall. Okay, so now on to Arya. So Arya, when we last saw her in Season 2, she had escaped Harrenhal. Uh, so when we see her in Season 3, it's now Episode 2. She's with Gendry and Hot Pie, and they're, you know, traveling through the woods, trying to go east to uh, meet up with the Stark family. Well, they're quickly set upon the Brothers Without Banners. They're taken in. But the Brotherhood, you know, they're not any enemies to them. They just kind of hold them with the idea of ransoming Arya to Rob and Catelyn, to her mother, you know, her brother. That is the plan at the time. But then they get the Hound and they kind of um, deviate from that plan. There's first the trial with the Hound. Uh, the Hound wins uh, the trial by combat against Beric Dondarrion. Uh, we see Beric Dondarrion killed and then brought back by Thoros of Mir, which is a you know key element to this show. We see it happen later on with you know Jon Snow in season six, brought back from the dead. So that's something that needs to be understood, and we see that firsthand in season three. So then Arya, you know, she becomes a little bit disenfranchised with the Brotherhood. You know, she's mad that they let the Hound go. She gets mad that they sell Gendry off to Melisandre. Um, She eventually runs away, and she's quickly captured by the Hound. Uh, So the latter half of Season 3, Arya spends time with the Hound, and she gets to know more about the Hound, and eventually... uh, by the time season four ends, you know, the hound's off her list. Um, I think she learns a lot in terms of, you know, who to attack, kind of how to fight your battles, um, and just what kind of drives the hound. 
which is you know good she didn't she hadn't seen you know that personal side to the hound prior to season three and once she goes through this period of, of time you know alone with the hound or even when the hound was captive of the brotherhood without banners you know she gets an understanding for you know just you know his personality you know that this is a human being with you know a lot of deep-rooted uh issues he's not just some soldier that kills people you know he's not all bad right okay so then Arya, you know they make their way to the twins for the wedding and um you know we'll get back to that when i talk about the top moments of the show uh so then sansa stark it's a pretty quiet season for her she's um passed over by king joffrey now as we enter season three and you know she's kind of just cast off you know so at at this time in the series she's about 13 to 14 years old she's just now entered puberty um you know so she doesn't have any real relationships with anybody there no friends Littlefinger tries to get close with her as I talked about to, in the season two recap, you know, he's, he's trying to keep that option open just in case the thing with Eliza doesn't end the way he wants it to. He knows that he then has a good working relationship with Sansa. Potentially he can bring her onto his side, um, keep her close to him and, you know, eventually strike a marriage with her. So while Littlefinger is trying to work this kind of angle with her uh there's also the tyrells trying to get closer with sansa to at least get some information from her about the lannisters and in joffrey in particular uh so we see her form a little bit of a relationship with marjorie and you know this is something that's needed for sansa she doesn't like i said she doesn't have any friends in king's landing so having somebody that she can confide in that she can trust a little bit is pretty important um, but at the end of the day, you know, the Lannisters find out about this arrangement that Elena has, has talked about in terms of, you know, getting Sansa to, to wed Loras and then move to Highgarden. Tywin finds out about this proposal, nips it in the bud, says, nope, we're going to have Sansa marry Tyrion. So by the end of season three, Sansa is now wed Tyrion and... You know, Tyrion has it upon him to get Sansa pregnant with, with a child to potentially have the heir to, the, to Winterfell in the north. So that's the scheme there. Then moving on to Jon Snow. Uh, so Snow is now with the Wildlings. Uh, he's doing everything he can to continue to convince them that he is now a free folk. He's not, you know, still a member of the Night's Watch. They moved south towards the wall. They then climbed the wall, going over uh, an unmarked post. Um, then they move east to Castle Black. And as they approach east to Castle Black, uh, they attack a small village where there's one elderly man and a bunch of horses. They want to take the horses. 
John is forced to to kill the old man, but he won't do it, and um, creating this opportunity for him to escape, he kills a few members of the wildlings. Uh, Bran and Rickon are also up there. They're in a tower, and Bran helps out John by warging into Summer. Summer attacks some of the wildlings. Anyways, John gets away. And in the process of getting away, Egret shoots him with three arrows, uh, one in the back, one in the leg, and uh, I think one like on the rib cage. So John rides off. He rides to the to the Castle Black, and that's the last that we see of him. Then we've got the Watch. I want to quickly talk about uh, the rest of the Night's Watch. So they're remember we saw them see the white walkers at the end of season two it season three opens with this really cool shot of a night's watch soldier with his head cut off and he's holding his head in his hands sort of like he's praying i just thought that that was a really cool shot okay so then as they move south back towards the wall they stop at craster's keep and a number of the night's watch are pretty unhappy with the way things are going right they're starving they're cold and Craster isn't giving them any of their of his food or, or treating them very well you know even coming inside for shelter and and to sit by the fire they get you know some snide remarks and uh, a number of them aren't really having it so eventually uh, Carl one of the leaders of the ranger party isn't happy and uh, you know gives Craster a piece of his mind. So Craster then says, if any of you call me bastard again, I'm going to attack you. And uh, <laughs> Carl basically you know, tests him on this, knowing that he's got the upper hand with his ability to fight. And... Uh, it doesn't end well for Craster. Carl kills him. Lord Commander Mormont has to try to calm things down. And he gets a knife in the back. So we've got a full-on mutiny on our hands. And in the same time, uh, we see uh, yeah, Sam. Sam runs away. He grabs Gilly, gets the hell out of there. And then the remaining members of the Night's Watch that aren't part of the mutiny, they have to run as well. And we see at the end in the finale that uh, a number of them have made it back to Castle Black just as Jon Snow comes riding in, uh, just barely alive, still on his horse. Okay, so now we move on to G Jamie and Brienne. So as we know, they um, are making their way towards King's Landing. As at the outset of season three, um, they have a little sword fight on a bridge. After Jamie uh, grabs one of Brienne's swords, but before anything could happen, Brienne had looked like she had won that fight. Uh, they're set upon by a number of Bolton men and taken captive again. So, so now they're hogtied back towards. Um, one of the Bolton camps, and we also see Jamie 
soon uh, lose his hand at the hands of Locke, who uh, gets kind of, you know, played by Jamie in terms of the story about the Isle of Tarth, uh, which he calls the Sapphire Island, says he can potentially get a lot of money from Brienne's father. Obviously, this isn't true. And um, I think Locke just wasn't having any of, you know, Jamie's clever uh, attempts to, to, you know, push him in one direction or another. So Jamie loses his hand. This is a big season for Jamie because I think we really see him grow as a character. There's a moment in the episode uh, Kissed by Fire where he and Brienne are taking a hot bath together. And, you know, Jamie really opens up about, you know, just that history with the Mad King, what happened there, uh, why he's kind of unsettled by being called the Kingslayer. You know, he tells Brienne that, you know, would you, what would you do if your king was telling you to burn them all and then kill, kill your own father? And I think Jamie is in this position where, you know, he's got to be a knight. He's, you know, not supposed to talk ill of the king and really, like, try to explain himself. But at the same time, he did face a moral question in that moment. And it's unfair that not many people really understand that decision that he was faced with. And so... In telling Brienne this, he's opening up, but as an audience, you're also realizing that there's more to Jamie than really meets the eye. And he's not as bad as the the kid that, you know, tossed Bran off the broken tower. There's more to Jamie there. He's not this evil person that's strictly just out to, you know, have sex with Cersei and that's it. That's all that he cares about. No, I think Jamie has a little bit more moral, you know, strength to him, more of a code. And it's just interesting to find out little by little, you know, what's important to him and who he will end up defending and and why. So at the end of the season, um, he's gotten quite close to Brienne. As he's making his way to King's Landing, he has to go back and save Brienne because originally uh, Roose Bolton didn't allow Brienne to travel with Jamie. She was going to be basically killed off at the hands of Locke. But Jamie rides back and saves her from the bear. It's another big moment in the season. And then the two of them return to King's Landing uh, by the finale. Okay, and then uh, let's touch on uh, Stannis really quick. So Stannis is kind of in the position that Rob's in. He's needing more forces. He needs to find a battle plan. You know, he's back at um, Dragonstone licking his wounds. And we don't see a whole lot from Stannis in this season. Just a lot of him talking to Melisandre. Um, he imprisons Davos for Davos trying to kill Melisandre. And then, um, you know, we see Melisandre go and get Gendry. There's, you know, this idea that King's blood can help Stannis reclaim the throne. He doesn't need 
men he needs these kings to die and so they use a little bit of blood magic by by leeching uh, Gendry tossing some leeches into the fire and, and you know saying some curses on you know Joffrey Baratheon on Rob Stark and on uh, Balin Greyjoy so that's Stannis's season just kind of uh, licking his wounds back at Dragonstone say some spells on the three kings and um, imprisoning Davos. All right, so then on to the Lannisters and King's Landing. Let's start with Cersei. You know, Cersei's the queen regent. She's kind of losing a little bit of control over Joffrey if she ever had any control over her son. And now with the Tyrells there, she's doing her best to keep Marjorie, you know, keep her away from uh, Joffrey as much as possible in terms of just, you know, not allowing her to exert uh, so much influence over Joffrey. But she's fighting a losing battle. Joffrey obviously finds Marjorie very pretty. Uh, Marjorie does a good job of, you know, listening to Joffrey, not kind of arguing with him at all, just letting him with his, you know, unique interests kind of stay interested in what he's interested in, um, even though she's not. She's just being a good wife, you know, a good uh, fiancé and, uh, you know, trying to f show interest in the subjects that he's interested in. You know, we see that uh, with the crossbow. We see that with the stories he tells of the Targaryen leaders um, in the Red Keep. So... Uh, Marjorie's doing a really good job of uh, getting Joffrey to like her and then also influence him in the subtle ways that she does. And Cersei's obviously not pleased with this. She sees that right away. But there's really not a whole lot she can do because, you know, uh, Marjorie's engaged to become queen and, um, you know, going up against the king there, if she were to do anything to Marjorie would not be good for Cersei, so she's got to pick her spots. And uh, Elena does a good job of keeping Cersei away from Marjorie as much as possible. Uh, and the other aspects of Cersei's season is just this war with Tyrion and um, you know trying to find out about Shay, try to get on Tyrion that way by taking out a girl that he really likes. Uh, and then with the whole Sansa plot, being discovered, Tywin decides to marry uh, Cersei to Loras. That's not something Cersei's happy about and doesn't get enacted by the end of the season. But the proposal is out there. Uh, with Tyrion Lannister, uh, it's kind of slow season for him. He acts as the uh, Lord of Coin in this season. And with the Sansa plot, with Loras, Tywin then redirects it, says, no, Sansa, you'll marry Tyrion. So Tyrion is forced to wed Sansa and to impregnate her. It's not something that Tyrion really relishes as, you know, Sansa's a young girl. She's 13 to 14 at this time. And that's quite younger than, you know, how old Tyrion is. So... Uh, it's not something that he looks forward to, really. He is, you know, has some empathy for Sansa, who's now lost 
her brother and her mother by the and her father by the time that they get married and not to mention you know Sansa's married against her will it's not like she wanted to marry Tyrion so there's a lot going on here that you know Tyrion's empathetic to and are sympathetic to and you know it's important for Tyrion to I think as a person then he, he just he's not going to force a girl like Sansa to do something that she doesn't want to do um, and then at the same time now he has to battle with Shay who's disappointed that you know Tyrion's you know hooking up you know romantically involved with another girl even though he doesn't really w wish to be it's you know um, it's an issue of jealousy for Shay and now Tyrion has to deal with with Shay's disappointment and trying to keep her safe because he knows that Cersei is soon going to find out that you know of his relationship with Shay and that's not a good thing for Shay nor uh, Tyrion so he does his best there and then let's talk about the Tyrells uh, so I've briefly mentioned kind of their storyline but uh, you know they do a really good job of trying to get as much information from Sansa as they can about King Joffrey you know as um, Marjorie is now betrothed to Joffrey um, they have a lot of influence Tyrion goes to Olenna to try to get some money for the wedding uh, Olenna agrees to pay for half of the wedding that will be to come um, Olenna does a good job of keeping Cersei off of Marjorie. You know, there's now kind of an adversary for Cersei, and she's not able to to exact as much, you know, force over over Joffrey or over King's Landing as as she does in, in future seasons. You know, namely because of Olenna, but also because of Tywin, who's um, running King's Landing as Hand of the King. Uh, you know, we talked about their plot with Sansa that gets foiled by Tywin. They are working with um, Varys at the time, and uh, Varys is working to try to um, spoil Littlefinger's plans. But we see that both of their plans are spoiled. Um, so neither uh, Varys or Littlefinger went out over the other. Briefly touch on Littlefinger. So Littlefinger, as we talked about, was trying to get Sansa, you know, to his side. Um, he ends up being awarded Harrenhal and told to go out to the Eyrie and bring Lysa into the fold by marrying Lysa. So he has left King's Landing by the end of episode six for the Eyrie. All right, let's, uh, let's quickly touch on Joffrey. So Joffrey in this season is kind of an absentee king. As I mentioned, Tywin runs the King's Landing. He, he's running the kingdom, and he's keeping Joffrey away from the small council meetings as much as possible and keeping him away from the things that he likes to do so that uh, you know he doesn't get out of control. So Joffrey really spends most of his time getting to know Marjorie. Um, you know, they become pretty close. 
you know, because I think that, like I said, Marjorie does a really good job of, you know, staying in, interested in what he, he's interested in, not, um, you know, upsetting Joffrey and uh, kind of getting him more engaged with, with his uh, citizens. Uh, but he also, you know, spends still en- enough time as much as he can, uh, you know, tormenting Sansa, especially at the wedding in episode eight. You know, just uh, f- taking away the stool from Tyrion when he's supposed to put the cloak on Sansa and kiss her. Um, you know, forcing them t- to the bedding ceremony. Just multiple instances where. Joffrey continues to torment Sansa Stark. All right, moving across to Essos. Uh, Danny has uh, her best storyline so far. You know, the first three seasons, season three is definitely her strongest moment. Uh, we see her take the unsullied army from Ostapor. And I thought that this is really a, um, not only a cool moment, but a really telling moment about uh, Danny's maturation. So, you know, we see the Astapor leader believe that she's, you know, a stupid little girl that, you know, she doesn't speak Valyrian. Well, he comes to realize, uh, find out that she does, but this whole time he's talking to Miss Sandy, who's one of his slaves, and using her as a translator between him and Danny uh, while he's speaking Valyrian. And Danny is using the common tongue. So <laughs> the Astapor leader, you know, shows a lot of contempt for Danny. And so in the process of talking about this arrangement and buying the Unsullied, Danny discusses it over with Jorah Mormont as well as Barristan Selmy, who's now joined her forces. And, you know, she learns about the slave army, but she has no other choice than to purchase the Unsullied. And, you know, she offers Drogon for the Unsullied. The Astapor leader, you know, gives into this arrangement. It's obviously quite valuable to have a dragon, and um, he agrees. Uh, but Danny is smart. She knows that the dragon isn't going to obey anybody but her, and she pulls a fast one on him. Uh, she also knows that she speaks Valyrian. She can command the Unsullied, and once she has command of the Unsullied with the whip, they obey her, and, you know, she shows some intelligence here, some uh, craftiness, having the Unsullied take out the other masters that are around, and immediately um, kill the Astapor leader with our second Dracarys moment, and, uh, you know, she has Drogon burn the Astapor leader that was really just being an asshole the entire time, and um, she takes Miss Sandy while she's at it. So this moment really shows Danny's growth, shows her growth as a leader, and her taking the stride, the necessary strides, to become to become queen. And um, it's very important. So then she leaves Astapor with the Unsullied. She goes to Yunkai. Uh, in Yunkai, she gets um, an arrangement with the uh, with the second sons through Dario Naharis. Dario Naharis uh, kills his other two, um, I guess, commanders 
and uh, gives allegiance to, or pledges allegiance to Danny with the Second Son's force. And uh, with that Second Son's force, they then are able to go into Yunkai and free 200,000 slaves. And that's something that's very important to Danny. So at the end of season three, all the slaves call her mother, and it's quite emotional. Just kidding, not really, but they try to make it be. Okay, so let's get over to Bran. So Bran now, uh, he and Rickon are traveling with Osha and Hodor. Hodor, uh, north to the wall, and then they're going to go north past the wall. Hodor. Uh, and then, so Jojen and Mira Reed come across Bran and Rickon and Osha and Hodor. And Jojen is an interesting character. He has the sight as well as Bran does. Um, and he knows about Worgen, though he is not a warg himself. Um, so he starts to enlighten Bran to his powers. And we see Bran for the first time actually knowingly warg Summer and also use his sight ability in seeing the Three-Eyed Raven. Uh, so this is very important, right? This knowledge that Bran seems to starts to get about his powers and his ability to start then using the worgen ability, uh, you know, on his own, um, you know, and this ability to then use his ability to warg when he wants to. Uh, so we see Bran in the tower help Jon Snow by warging Summer, and then they escape to uh, one of the abandoned guard posts on the wall where they then uh, meet Sam and Gilly, and they're helped down through that guard post uh, past the wall. Okay, so then um, I think that's... Most of the storylines um, that we wanted to touch on. So, okay, let's answer a few questions that I've received about this season. And um, the first one is, so why doesn't Rob reach out to Stannis? You know, and that's another question that I had from season two. Um, and again, it lingers into season three. And, you know, it's a good question. I mean, he reached out to Renly. Um, you know, tried to team up with Renly, but once Renly's killed off by Stannis, there's no then attempt to reach out to Stannis. And I think this is, you know, a problem for, that, you know, weakens both sides. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit disappointing, a little bit frustrating. You kind of wish that they had kind of teamed up because, again, Rob Stark doesn't want the Iron Throne. I mean, Stannis is entitled to that. Rob's willing to, I think, back Stannis's claim, just like his father was. He just wants that revenge upon the Lannisters and then to go back to Winterfell and be able to be the Lord of Winterfell. Um, I wonder if perhaps that moment that ends season two where he's claimed King in the North maybe keeps him from, um, you know, teaming up with Stannis or even just sending an envoy to, to kind of find out where Stannis stands in regards to Rob. Um, it's 
possible that you know by being named king of the north that he then thinks there's no chance that Stannis will team up with him uh, that's possible but I think that at least a letter you know an envoy out to Stannis to you know find out where he stands and if there's a potential opportunity for them to you know put their forces together and and you know attack at the same time and crush the Lannisters together and then once that is finished go their separate ways and and you know each take over what they want to take over okay so then uh, the next question is um the stall tactics with Arya you know again they're pretty annoying um you know so you know I agree I think that another frustrating season for Arya even though we see her kind of grow you know she's definitely maturing and she's becoming a more strong character by you know seeing more of what what lies in Westeros just the other forces at play that different characters the people that are a part of the realm that she hasn't met. You know, I'm talking about Beric Dondarrion, the Brotherhood, uh, Thoros of Mir, Melisandre, um, you know, getting to know the Hound better. I think these are all important things for Sansa, or for Arya to learn. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's plenty of opportunity for her to be brought to the twins before the wedding, and yet we see these stall tactics where the Hound is literally, I mean, seriously, watch episode 9, watch episode 8. They're literally just kind of trotting the horse at, you know, a canter rather than galloping or, you know, even sprinting towards their destination. And this is why Arya gets there late. And, you know, there's also this moment where, you know, they come across... A person bringing food down to the twins they take his wagon and the hound is literally eating food off the wagon for what seems like the entire afternoon when we know that there's about to be a major wedding at the twins which is got to be less than a mile two miles away and he's sitting there eating food off the cart when he could just get to the twins get his gold have a feast with, you know, the phrase in the Starks, you know, at the Twins. I mean, you can literally dine there, but he's, we're killing time out in the field for an entire afternoon where they're just cooling their heels. It's just really frustrating. Um, I understand what G.R.R. Martin was attempting to do here. He didn't want Arya in that situation so that he could save her but um you know it's again it's a stall tactic and if you don't want uh, Arya to to be in that situation maybe don't have her captured by the hound in the first place or don't have the hound pick up this information that uh they're hosting a wedding at the twins maybe just have them go to river run where they had originally expected them to be and um you know go about it in that way but uh just this plot device that oh we're gonna have them stall and then just miss 
the wedding so that Arya isn't caught in the situation where you know her family is killed and she's a part of that I mean you could have had her escape it in any number of ways it's just kind of silly to me okay and then um, yeah why did the Tyrells have to wait to marry Sansa to Loras you know this is another good question because you know Tywin mentions that the Tyrells wouldn't dare act until after Marjorie and Joffrey are wed but you know, what does it even matter? As we see, you know, Tywin has no problem with having a wedding before Joffrey's wedding. He ends up wedding Tyrion to Sansa before Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding. Uh, he also doesn't need permission from Sansa or anybody around Sansa to wed her to Tyrion. So the Tyrells didn't need any uh, permission from anybody to wed Sansa, they could have just taken her, you know, just taken her and, you know, with, she even was willing to wed Loras, but that was not something that, that mattered anyways, as we see. All right, so it's not like, you know, there was a need to wait, and I think just this idea that maybe they wanted to make sure that they had the firm tie with the Lannisters by wedding and Marjorie, like, okay, that's done now. Now we can, you know, maybe try to show a little bit more influence. But um, it's not like Joffrey could then, you know, renege on a second betrothal. Um, these betrothals are very serious in nature. They're, you know, you're not easily taken out of them. And it wouldn't have been seen as a traitorous act to, to marry Sansa to Loras when, again... They didn't need permission from anybody, and even Sansa was willing to to do that. So um, it's just curious that they had to wait, and I think it's another just plot device to keep the Lannisters in power and as the central, you know, antagonists of the series. Okay, let's get into the top moments of the season now. Um, Okay, so like I mentioned, the head in the hands of the Night's Watch member as we open season three, just that kind of opening shot, I think, sets the tone for this season. Um, Jamie and Brienne's fight on the bridge, I thought that was a good moment. Kind of see Brienne's ability as a swordsman um, and kind of Jamie for the first time with a sword in his hands, what he's capable of. Clearly, he's a bit rusty and, you know, with his hands bound, he's not quite able to do everything that he's capable of. But in this moment, you really get to understand just how strong Brienne is. Uh, okay, and then uh, also, obviously, Locke cutting off Jamie's hand. It's a huge moment. Um, Danny uh, kind of owning the Astapor leader and the second Jokari's moment is another huge scene. Carl, Carl killing Craster. I thought that that was not only a uh, big time moment, but also a really funny scene. You know, it's it's funny to see Craster being told what's up and uh, some of the Night's Watch just taking issue with, with him not being um, very kind to them. Uh, and then 
Barrick and the Hound, uh, their duel. It's an exciting sequence there. You know, I think it plays out really well. And we, again, we see the resurrection for the first time, you know, just with the red uh, priestess and, and a guy like Thoros of Mir, the servants of the Lord of Light, are able to do. You know, we find out about Beric Dondarrion's background, how many times he's been killed. It's another interesting kind of fact um, or tidbit that's included. Uh, the Arya and Gendry scene in Kiss by Fire, I think that that's a really touching moment. You know, Gendry calls Arya his lady. Arya wants Gendry to come with him, to be, come, sorry, come with her and, you know, join Rob and, and be a part of their family. Clearly, there's a good relationship there between Arya and Gendry, and that's another aspect of potentially in Season 7 that will be really interesting to watch. I think that there's a potential for another reunion there, and, um, you know, that would be a touching scene. I, I think that if there's anybody that you'd like to see Arya match up with in the end, it'd be with Gendry. And maybe that happens. There's uh, Rob executing Lord Karstark. There's uh, Brienne and Jamie in the bath. Um, just, you know, Jamie's monologue there, him opening up. It's a pretty dramatic scene. Again, that's in Kiss by Fire, which you'll find is one of my favorite episodes, not only of this season, but of the series. Uh, then there's the climb. You see that show off showdown between Littlefinger and Varys in in the throne room. I think the score there is really good. The way that they pair it with climbing the wall at the same time, to me, it's just really well done. A really dramatic moment, and you also get kind of a little bit of a window into what drives Littlefinger. You know, then there's the Red Wedding. Clearly, so let's get to the Red Wedding here in the Reigns of Castamere episode. So, you know, they agree to this wedding for Edmure with the phrase daughter to then get the phrase allegiance and, uh, you know, partner up with them. But they don't know that Walder Frey has been talking with Tywin Lannister and been promised the ability to then take over River Run and be a part of the Lannisters. And, um, you know, he betrays them, and it's the ultimate betrayal because you are sitting down to dine. You're welcoming, you know, these people into your home, into your hearth, and dining with them. They don't have any weapons. It's completely a backstabbing, and it's the worst kind. Uh, there's nothing that's held in more contempt than what Walder Frey does, and it just shows exactly what type of character that Walder Frey has he's just a snake so you know that's what happens there and they not only kill Rob with a couple arrows and a knife wound they stab Talisa multiple times in her belly where she's obviously holding a child and they slit Catelyn's throat and this is all done just before Arya and the Hound reach uh, the twins and they're inside the castle area but they're not actually inside the great hall so Arya is able to escape with the hound uh, but Grey Wind is not Grey Wind is taken out yeah it's Arya sees the dire wolf being killed and just knows kind of what it means and 
the symbolism there is is quite striking. Okay, another one of the big moments of the series is obviously Bran warging into Hodor. So not only do we see Bran, you know, warging Summer and doing it consciously, we actually see him without meaning to warg into Hodor. And this now raises a bigger question of, wow, just how strong are Bran's abilities? Is he able to warg into other people not just you know a simple-minded Hodor you know this could potentially pay off in the future seasons with bigger and greater possibilities for Bran but so just that moment of, of warging Hodor and, and taking control of Hodor's body and, and all that strength that Hodor possesses it ends up being something that's very crucial for Bran in uh, future seasons. Okay, and then uh, so John escaping the wildlings obviously is one of the biggest moments of the season that also happens in the Reigns of Casimir episode, episode 9. Uh, Yigret shoots him with three arrows, uh, but she doesn't shoot to kill. She just shoots to maim, and I think, you know, obviously she still loves Jon Snow, um, and she didn't want to kill him, but she's quite hurt by him running off, um, you know, running from her. Um, you know, the scene with her, with the two of them in the cave is also a pretty big moment for the season. It's Jon Snow breaking his vows, and uh, it's also his first time with a girl. And you really see him get close to Egret, even though I think for the most part, the relationship between Egret and Jon Snow is, is on Egret's side. I think Egret has more care for Jon Snow than Jon Snow has for her. But I do think that he starts to feel a little bit of a of a pull to Ygritte just because Ygritte, you know, is the first girl that he's ever been with and she saved his life on multiple occasions. So, you know, there's a little bit of a trust there and a little bit of a bond there, but I do think that you know, as we see John leave, I mean, he's going to take that first opportunity to leave, and he does. So I don't think John ever truly loved Egret, but I do think that he felt, you know, this um, strong tie with her because what she did to, to keep him alive and, you know, care for him when he needed that. All right, so now we'll do our characters that we're going to miss and characters that we won't miss from season three. So these are characters that are obviously been killed off, not characters that maybe disappear for some time and then come back. Uh, so we won't see Gendry on this list, even though Gendry has been put out to the narrow sea to try to escape Dragonstone. And just how long he's rowing that boat, we will never know. Okay, so um, the characters that we won't miss. Let's start with what we won't miss. Um, first is going to be Catelyn Stark. Um, I, you know, I like Kat as a mom, but as a character, I did not like her because of, you know, the things that she was willing to do that just made no sense. You know, letting Jamie free, just a weak moment and it dooms the Starks. Uh, and then Talisa, you know, this is another character that is really just out there to doom the Starks. You know, she's spying on Rob and... She ends up being the reason for 
Rob's downfall and the Sark's downfall, at least for the first few seasons. Third character that we're going to miss is, uh, or sorry, not going to miss, is Craster. You know, while funny and kind of an interesting antagonist, I think Craster had to go and uh, I think he met a good end. And then lastly, Lord Karstark. Uh, Lord Karstark, not a real good bannerman and somebody that was really just out for his own justice and you can't have that you know when you're a bannerman and you're serving another person okay the characters that we will miss uh starts with lord commander jorior Mormont. i just you know jor what you know what can you say about the lord commander i think he had a lot of strength to him he commanded respect commanded leadership and um you know we're gonna miss him we're gonna miss his ability to rally the Night's Watch and make decisions and then kind of impart some wisdom to Jon Snow and the others. And then uh, I'm also going to miss the Astapor leader. Uh, even though he was a bit of a douchebag, I thought he was pretty funny. And, you know, this series can use some of that humor. Okay, so that brings us to our favorite three episodes. And let's start with episode number three. And now his watch has ended. So that's my third favorite episode. It's uh, the episode, fourth episode of the season. And for me, just, you know, seeing the mutiny and um, losing Jor Mormont, it's, it's a big enough moment in the season for it to take the third best uh, episode. The second best episode is Kissed by Fire. Uh, Kiss by Fire is, you're going to find out, going to be one of my top 10 episodes of the series. Uh, there's just a lot of good moments in this episode. We talked about uh, John and Egret hooking up. We also mentioned uh, Jamie and Brienne seen in the bath. There's also um, Beric and the Hounds battle. And then Arya with Gendry. Just some really emotional scenes as well as some key pivotal moments that, um, you know, propel this series forward. And last but not least, the best episode of the season, obviously Reigns of Castamere. Um, that's going to be a top three episode uh, for a long time, and it's got everything. We see Bran Warg for the first time. We see Jon Snow really close to Bran. We also see the Red Wedding, which is the second most shocking, um, you know, the number two in the shocking moments of the Game of Thrones series. In season two, I mentioned the what the fuck moment with um, Melisandre birthing the demon. Well, this is the second moment in that line where you're just you're in awe of what Game of Thrones pulls off. And you know, the Red Wedding is an iconic moment. And and as you ex would expect, it, you know, sets Twitter all up in a frenzy, social, you know, burns up social media, and as it should, it's a shocking moment. So those are our three favorite moments. And with that, our Season 3 recap comes to an end. Um, just, again, would like to ask all of my listeners to rate, review, and subscribe to my podcast, The Long Winter. Um, 
going to have plenty more content coming out as uh, we enter Season 7. And then with Season 7, weekly reviews of each episode, as I mentioned uh, in my introductory podcast. So a lot coming, and um, I hope you guys really enjoy listening to the show. I'm doing my best to kind of touch on all the different things that I think you guys would want to hear and and, um, be touched on. But if I'm missing out on anything... Definitely get in touch. You can reach me at the long. Uh, you can reach me at at Long Winter Pod on Twitter, and um, obviously with your reviews in iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, definitely put that in there as well. So um, let's get some feedback and you know make this a group thing. I don't want to just have it be me sitting here and talking. Let's uh, make it a group discussion, and you know I'd love to engage you guys in in the entire thing. So, again, thanks for listening, and uh, until next time, this is the Long Winter Pod.